This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trab. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast of modern day exploration to the Fringe Paths, to Bureau 13, and the Hardwired Hinterland, and any other game produced by TriTech Games. Also, we enjoy bringing our knowledge and our experience into your game, wherever it may be. And we'd love to hear about your games and how the uh, TriTech games can be a benefit to you. So, tonight, our topic is, how do you handle characters from high-tech backgrounds and low-tech backgrounds with modern tech characters, all together in one campaign? How do you do it and make it all work? John... What's the problems we're having as far as defining height and low tech? It's all relative. To us, the Victorians are, in some cases, lower tech, but in some cases, they're higher tech because they do different things. People from the Golden Horde, well, they're low tech, right? Well, compared to other folks, like the Tazeel, they're high tech. So what is high tech and what is low tech is all relative. Right. There's a bit of snobbery involved, too, because we'll say, oh, they're low tech and they're primitive. no. I, I'm the first one to say they're not primitive. You just try to live the life of a person in the past. You realize that they are fairly technical, just that their technology is not our technology. They're not stupid. They're very smart. In fact, in some cases, they may be a little more smarter in doing some things than we are. But overall, the low tech is anyone whose technology is not as advanced as your technology. And that's about the best we can do for defining what is low tech and, and what is high tech. What I said was it was technology that was not in common usage by someone who is in what we consider to be a modern technological world. Yeah. Someone who does candle making, for example. Mm-hmm. That's considered a craft, not an industry. Yeah. And the same thing with blacksmithing. Blacksmithing is actually a very highly skilled profession, but you know most people don't think about the necessity of doing such things when you have hydraulic presses that can pump out metal parts by the thousands an hour. One of my favorite examples is stone tech. People say, well, that's really primitive. No, there are pieces of flint. These are works of art. And you look at them, you go, how does this guy make this without shattering the flint? Very detailed very lacy, very delicate, and all he had was a rock and deer antler. This is something that we can't figure out how they did. Well, it had been a practice technique. I mean, the guy, yeah. you know, it, there, there's a certain, just a certain way of doing it. So yeah. I believe um, science is the procedure. Technology is the tools that you use to help build what you're trying to use with that science, I believe, is would be the difference between science technology. So the stone and the deer antler would be the technology. The technique that he uses would be the quote-unquote science of flint shaping, I guess would be it. Absolutely, yeah. uh, Trav, because te- calculus was developed you know, during a time when we would consider to be low-tech. Anyone who's ever studied calculus knows it's not low-tech, <laughs> or it's not primitive. Newton came up with it because he needed a way to describe motions, the motions of planets. 
and he's a genius. And he basically worked out uh, calculus has been refined over the years. It's been new, newer versions of like integral calculus and so forth have been added onto it. But yeah, Newton, while he was hiding away away from London during the during a bit, bit of plague, came up with calculus all by himself. <laughs> John, we sort of said what we think low-tech is, okay, at least as far as in terms of this conversation. So what would high-tech be? I'm sort of familiar with this because I was first born. My first TV set was black and white, you know, mono. Today I have a flat-screen TV. To my five-year-old self back in the 60s, that TV there is high-tech. I have seen it in my living room right now. This computer was not even possible, even considered. It's, It's the same technology, only very much better very much more refined, or, or it's technology you never even thought of. It's like 40 years ago, my grandmother mm. had a rotary phone with a party line. On my coffee table here now, I have a BlackBerry 8530 curve that accesses the internet, and you can do texting, and, I am, and that is incredibly higher tech than that rotary phone from 1960-something. Oh. Right. Heck, my so, little page-to-go phone has got, more, has got more computing power than my first computer. Oh, yeah. Your, your Go phone has more power than NASA did during the Apollo project. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They had an 8-bit computer. You know, maybe we can go a little bit toward what I'm thinking, which is high-tech. Okay, I agree. It's, it's technology that is extrapolated. And we covered this a really a lot when we talked about super high-tech. It's, it's going to be better. It's going to have a better range. It's going to be more reliable. It's going to be more <laughs> flexible. It's probably going to have more functions to it. Uh, some of the things that we don't have now in any effective way are robotics. There's AI in the sense of real-time natural language translators. They're working on that. Uh, robotics also have factories. We actually, a lot of factories these days are robotic. I know that, John, but we're talking about the robotics that are, you know, Robbie the Robot ro- robotics, okay? Rosie. Rosie who can go run around and, and cook meals, robots that can go up and down stairs, robots that can fold towels and put them into the drawer. Okay, it doesn't have to have a mind in the sense of, you know, being able mm-hmm. to carry on a conversation with you, but it has to be able to have a spatial awareness around it that allows it to navigate reliably and, you know, not stuff the cat into the dishwasher. Yeah, and also it can operate via voice command and you don't have to program. You just simply tell it, uh, Jeeves, Go make me some tea. And that's all you need to say. Right. Just like you don't have to program your phone because someone already did the programming for you. We can say that high tech is enhanced and or extrapolated technology. Right. Either it's yeah. just a better version or somebody went that extra mile and said, well, what if we try this, this and this with what we have now? What would we get? Okay. Is this also technology based on principles of theories that either have not been proven at this time or never have been thought of. We can't deal with anything that hasn't been thought of, John. <laughs> I think that I would know, fall into oh, screaming into super high tech. You know? Yeah, because yeah, like like the phase drive from FTL 2448 is, you know, phase technology is something that we have no concept of right now. Right. We don't understand teleportation. We don't understand warp drives. But you know. fusion technology we can extrapolate it. Right. We, we just yep. have not definitively done something, what do they call it, cold fusion. Right. But we at least know that it's possible. Right. Room temperature superconductors. Yeah. We believe they can exist in theory. Therefore, we could say, hey, a high-tech device could have something like that. 
because it's something we haven't worked the kinks out of, but some other world that you might run into might have already handled that. I'm thinking of Larry Niven and their room temperature superconductors that come out of roll of tape, like like duct tape. Just roll it out and you got it. You know, like, okay. <laughs> so their tape is essentially wire. Yeah. Okay. But it's superconducting wire, so oh, it's yeah. like... Okay. Yeah, it just that just boggles the mind. Back before they actually had current, the only electricity was, you know, what you got from rubbing the back of a cat. <laughs> I'm sure that stuff flowing along a wire, a metal wire that wrapped probably with cloth, we thought that was a crazy thing, you know, so sure. Oh, yeah. So the situation we have here is it especially comes into a game like Fringeworthy, uh, where you have people who are coming from a world that's very close to our own. And they're mm-hmm. going out and they're meeting people in other worlds. Now, some of these worlds are going to have what we would consider lower tech than we do. They might be primitive Stone Age people. They might be technology a la the 1600s. They could be spatterings of really high tech, but then the rest of the world could be in really, really primitive tech because they've gone through a disaster. Because Frisbee really is a game about an apocalypse. It just wasn't our apocalypse. Oh, yeah. The other possibility is you run into a world out there that's been sealed off, and it's it's the Jetsons. I mean, they're really high tech in there. They've got all kinds of crazy stuff, you know. And they're 200, 300, even a thousand years advanced on our own world. Though I think when you do that, then you're kind of running in that ultra high tech because we all say, well, if we keep going like we have been, then you know, can you imagine what it'd be like even in 200 years? So I usually try to keep my high tech down around the the 100 years from now kind of timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, is that you've got people there and you find somebody there who's fringeworthy, somebody who's going to join your party. Well, he's going to want to bring his bells and toys and whistles along with him. And you're going to kind of want that too, because yeah. why wouldn't you want something that's smaller, more reliable, uh, runs faster, goes a farther distance, runs for a week, on a chiclet instead of a 40-gallon you know, tank of gas. There's reasons you might want that. Also, this is where you have kids who are like, what, what's 10 years old? Who do things like, oh, build atom smashers in their spare time. So we're talking about you know, people who have, who have knowledge and, te- and access to technology that just are just staggering. No, what you know? I do is like, oh, this guy wants to bring all his bells and whistles. They said... First of all, you're going to go, okay, and sit there and smile as he goes through the fringe path and all of his electronics go, yeah. So tell you what, though, burn it all on a CD and bring it back to, you know. (laughs) Right. uh, Yeah, all these blueprints and everything. Right. Well, there will be initial problems, of course. But, I mean, you you figure that after a certain amount of time has gone by, you'll have worked some workarounds to let people bring as much high tech as they want to bring with them. Okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Once you have all that, then we have to deal with this fact that you've got some people in the group who are from a low-tech world, and you have some people who are from a high-tech world, and you've got the people who are just your average Joe, so to speak, you know, IDET person. How do you make that all mixed together without the low-tech guy being the guy who has to do all the grunt work, and the high-tech guy becomes the leader and the wizard kind of guy? Some people might think that's an okay paradigm for an explorer party. I just think that maybe the players might not think so because, for if, as you mm-hmm. just said, the low-tech guy doesn't think of himself as being primitive. So he might have the skills of Cyrano de Bergerac. He might think of himself as an aristocrat, but everyone's going to ask him to do all the scut work because he doesn't know how to program this guy's ultra cell phone that can call around the world. 
depends what his skills are. If we are talking Cyrano de Bergerac, he actually is more of a face person. He has great personal skills. Just because you're low-tech doesn't mean you can't be the leader. You just have to know how to use your resources. In the high-tech world, it's just a resource. The high-tech person may be great, but he may have issues. Like his high-tech gear needs to go back to the high-tech world so he can recharge it or do maintenance on it that he can't do anyplace else. The high-tech guy, we don't want to nerf his character. We don't want to say, hey, you've got all these great things, but you can only use them once a day because otherwise they break. Or, yeah, you can use them, and then you know all your toys are not going to be worth more than a day or two into the mission because you grew up in a dome. And the air was filtered, and the ash from our campsite has gotten inside all your hard drives, and they're all crashing now. We're nerfing his character when we do that. But is that any different than saying you only brought 100 rounds in for your weapon. When it's gone, your weapon's now a very expensive club. It's not that different. It's not that different. He says, oh, well, if that's the case, then here, I'll bring 15 of them, and then, you know, we'll just trade them out as, as they wear out. Yeah, and that's legitimate. That's legitimate use. But we're still stuck with the same situation then, which is we have a high-tech guy who can overshadow the rest of the party. As long as he's bringing stuff that everybody can use. Just because you're from a low-tech world doesn't mean you can't learn how to dial a phone. It doesn't mean you can't use any of the sub-vocal mics. It doesn't mean you can't use an atomic-powered rebreather. So you just can't fix it. And if he's like our world, the high-tech guy can't fix it either, right, John? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, if my computer were to break down, I'd have to take it into a shop because there's no way I can repair it. Right. That's true for a lot of our technology. These days, it's it's so black box. It sometimes it's cheaper to simply buy new. Sometimes it's your only choice because they don't make replacement parts. My last computer was like that. When it started breaking down, it started getting really expensive because I had to get refurbished parts for it because it, it just didn't make those parts anymore. Eventually, you have to go to some place for them to actually cast it, mold it, and all the rest of it. So the high tech guy is no longer a high tech guy. He's just the high tech supply house. He gets all the goodies, and that can be unbalancing, too. Why? Well, I mean, okay, so, so you're a GM, you're putting your campaign together, and you have a certain tech level. And But all of a sudden, this guy decides that I want to play a high-tech guy from blah, from Zorg, the planet Zorg. And he has all these wonderful gadgets that work in 99% of the worlds out there. Okay. But these gadgets are going to be overpowering. Can you give me an example? Like high-tech spy devices, smart dust. He can just simply sprinkle smart dust, and you you can never pop an ambush on the team anymore because they know you're coming. Because smart dust can notice, ooh, someone's coming. Here's what they look like. You see a picture. We're talking real high tech. These guys, they're armed, and it looks like they look dangerous. So we, we'll get ready for them. Ambushes go away. I understand that. I, I guess it would come down to how much dust does it take to provide yeah. adequate coverage. Because, you know, most of the times that my players have gotten ambushed, they got ambushed walking along the pathway, making a lot of noise, talking to each other. Guys a quarter mile away could hear them coming. It might take a lot of smart dust to do that. Uh, because right now they're using, you know, bugs and, mm -hmm. and solar-powered spy cams and things like that. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying, and I'm necessarily not against that because one of the things we talk about a lot in this game is gathering good intel is important to the success of the mission. I don't like your example, but I understand your point. Yeah, I give a bad example, yeah. No, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> what you're saying is, is that if it changes some of the basic challenges in the game then 
okay, we got a problem. I mean, and I'll give you what I, uh, my example, which is, let's say some guy has some kind of a, as you said, smart dust. And the smart dust does chemical analyses. And anybody who comes within a couple hundred feet of you, if he's a meller, it does an analysis of their skin or whatever, or their breathing and says, hey, that's not human, that's an alien. And so you immediately know who the meller are and you've just nerfed the meller. Yeah. Or if you're talking like, say, in Bureau, Bureau 13, you got a guy from the future with self-replicating smart dust. Suddenly, a lot of supernatural encounters aren't the same anymore. The, the amount of level of horror or, or, or suspense goes away. Basically, he uses his smart dresser, he uses his tricorder to scan the place, and he comes up with all this information. It's like, uh, that's where the, the GM wants to get a big rock to fall on his tricorder to break it. Well, I think that's where the GM and the players are getting to sit down and say, Okay, you know, this is a problem I'm having and this is why. Yeah. And so either we have to change the nature of our mission so it's more action-oriented and less uh, investigation because the investigation is really just you sending, running a scan over the area and then saying, okay, well, now we know. We can reconstruct, you know, the bullet flight and the, and the size of the per- people mm-hmm. and, and we can take latent images off the window and now we know what the guy looks like. Okay, if you can do all that, then... And if that was important to the game, then yeah, you've just changed everything. And so you have to decide whether you want to play that. That's where you'd say, look, I I have no trouble with you playing a high-tech person, but you can't do that because that changes everything. At a certain point, the GM has to adjudicate what will break the game. I speak from experience on this, adding various things in my campaign that just, after a while, I was like, no, okay, looking back, that was a bad idea. And that is, that's just GM fiat. Trying to, you see something, oh, it can do this, 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 and this. Um, No, you got to nip that in the butt early. But we were working on things for our upcoming Savage Friends with the game, and we were looking at the divination spell, and we realized you could easily do 20 questions. You could find anything you want to in the game by just asking up most 20 questions. Most times you can get, you can find something in 10 questions. And the way the spell worked, or the way this power worked, boom, 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 boom. You can easily just simply say, is it north of me? Yes. Is it east of this line? Yes. Is it south of this line? No. Is it west? And you can simply just subdivide on the map until you come down to it within a block of where the thing is you're looking for. So it's kind of a binary search, huh? Nerf the spell. So it does provide information, but it's incredibly limited and doesn't break the game in the process. Well, it's like divination yeah. spells in, in the D&D player's handbook. They yeah. give you one-word answers. And yeah, there is a time limit. So after a while, unless you're you know uber high level, like a high level campaign, let's say 13 to 20, yeah, you're only going to be able to ask a number of questions. And after a while, you're still going to have to rely on legwork. You look at magical powers, for the most part, you can also say these are high-tech powers. Right. So look at your spell list from, from uh, D20 Modern or from your game du jour. Every one of those can be a high-tech power. How would they change the nature of your game if someone actually just pull a gun out and do fireballs at will? I deal with that with my friends with the D20 game because we're in a realm where technomagic is possible. And they have technomagic firearms. You have firearms that shoot fireballs, cold, force attacks, acid lightning you know and like 
my characters, I, I have a pulp investigator in the Friday Night Fringeworthy game, and he's firing force blasts like, you know, like, like he's got revolvers. And they're taking down creatures that are just very much higher level because they're standing back 120 feet, and this thing can't even get near them. They rely on brute strength. That's why firearms were made. Hit them before they hit you. And that greatly advanced hunting and even just throwing a spear as opposed to fighting with a, a flint knife. After mm -hmm. a while, humans learned, hmm, if we're not near the creature, it won't rip our guts out. Okay, this works nicely. And just we extrapolated from there. You're now forced to use ever more powerful creatures against your players. Yes, I'm guilty of that too. Yeah. My yeah. campaign is 10 to 12 level characters. I had to throw a CR 21 being at them to give Which... to make sure that they had their lumps. Two of the characters were shaking like ragdolls because it managed to get in and grab them. But they still took the thing down. And I'm going, okay, we have a problem here. And I need to work on that. And I've noticed that and I've worked on it. But some things for using high-tech versus low-tech, it looks good on paper. You know, what, what is it? The best laid plans fail when they come in contact with human beings. So yeah. you, you think it may be okay, and then you try it out, and you're like, no, this is made of fail. And you scrap it or try to fix it within the campaign to make sure it works again. Yeah. Now, that's from the high-tech point of view. Now, when we look at it from the low-tech, so say, we, say you have a Tazeel on your team. Tazeel are stone-level using. Yeah, they're lizard guys. They're lizard guys who use stone spears. You, you think, oh, they're really primitive. No, they're, they're just as sophisticated as we are, just that their, sophisticated, their technology is not as advanced. You know, they still have a fairly rich and, and sophisticated culture. It just is still at the stone level, level of technology. Right. But that doesn't mean they can't learn. It also doesn't mean that they can't be the face guy. It yeah. doesn't mean they can't, you know, be do no good negotiating. It doesn't mean that they can't mm -hmm. be expert trackers, expert woodsmen. I mean, any anything having to do with surviving and in the wilderness, they would be oh, yeah. much better at it. Certainly, much much better at it than the guy from the high tech world, where you know his his bunny slippers have little heaters in them. It was like you're watching these survivor shows, and you start realizing the average person would die within a few days if they didn't have their high-tech high tech gear. Versus someone from a low-tech version, they would look around and say, oh, there's a tree over there, some branches there. I can probably make a spear out of that. And then, I can, then once I get a spear, I can then make take the gut to make string to make a bow, and I can make some arrows, and he's he's going to last a long time. Well, the yeah, guy he got going, that, what is that, that man versus wild with, um, oh, what is yeah. his name? Bear Grylls, yeah. Yeah, I, I prefer Les Stroud and Survivor Man. He was out there by himself. Right. When you bring in a character who is from a low-tech world, almost immediately he's going to adopt all the advantages of the high-tech world. Yes. That he can do. If it's just a matter of materials, there's no reason why he can't get it. I mean, a World War I guy knew how to use and service a carbine, but it didn't mean he knew how to make one. And he, he really couldn't repair it either, but he could use it and he could maintain it. And that, these were people who were literally right off the farm. So they really did come from what we would be considering a primitive tech. These were places that didn't have electricity. You know, they had probably a water pump that provided the water for the kitchen. They cooked on fires. Most of them had pot-bellied stoves. And 
they didn't have to cook in the fireplace. But I'm just saying is that these people had, you know, basic 18th, 19th century technology with trucks and whatever, you know, higher tech, uh, better quality tools that they needed. Like PL4, yeah, PL, Progress Level 4 for D20 parlance, yeah. But they had no trouble picking up uh, what was the top-of-the-line carbine at that time, you know, and using it effectively in combat. Or learn to fly an airplane. Right. Several did. Back in World War One, it was easier to learn, a, learn an airplane because it was less complicated to learn the airplane. Well, yeah, that type <laughs> of tech, you have to make that type of tech that you're going to give your soldiers, you have to dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. It's like, how easy can you make this to use where they're not fumbling around with it in the middle of combat? If you look at the control panel of a Sopwith Camel or even a, a, a Jenny, there's like about, uh, you can count the number of dials with the fingers of one hand, maybe two. You look at the look at the control panel for an F-15 fighter. Or a 747 passenger jet, yeah. Yeah, this stuff behind you, you know, in terms yeah. of dials and levers. And 99% of the pilots can't fly those. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, so yeah, that would be an example of high tech. And, and that same guy might not be able to run a sailboat. That's true. (laughs) So what would actually limit a low-tech guy? And I'm not talking about the immediate thing where, you know, you walk in, he's staying there holding a a flint knife in in one hand and a fish in the other. I'm saying he's coming to the group. He's gone through IDET training. Is there anything he can't do? The common day stuff he still doesn't have down pat initially. You would be spending a couple levels getting the thing, what we call common knowledge. So if he's like, you know, starting out, yes, he's been through edit training, but, you know, when his phone rings, he looks around going, what, what? And said, so, so your phone's ringing. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just little things. I mean, he didn't grow up with phones. He didn't grow up with TV. He didn't grow up with radio. So there's chances are that he may become addicted to those things if, he, if he's exposed to them. There was a D&D space fantasy setting called Dragon Star. And Mm -hmm. the premise was that there was this over-encompassing draconic empire, star-spanning, galactic-sized empire that would come to fantasy worlds and take them over. All of a sudden, you're having these, your typical fantasy adventurers thrust into space-age society. And a lot of them just all of a sudden, oh, I have this fighter who has a sword and this and that. A soldier from this dragon empire comes up with a laser pistol and he's effectively firing because the, the damage for a laser is, you know, lists as fire in D20, effectively a, a fire beam. That's something only a wizard can do because that technology, that fighter is now 100 to 1,000 times more effective than that fighter with a sword because he has distance, advantage, you know, and, and there is a feat in Dragon Star called technical knowledge. You can get it at any level, even if you don't are not eligible for a level. You spend one level dealing with higher tech than yours. You have technical knowledge, and it allows you to use new skills. It allows you to be able to pick up a gun and use it, or be able to drive a vehicle, or use a computer. Even though you were raised in a pseudo-medieval, let's say, PL3 or PL4 society, you can now use PL five, six, seven, eight, nine technology. With extrapolation in time, you're able to pick up on this stuff. That's a game mechanic to explain, okay, how does this guy from 17th century 
how is a 17th century pirate able to all of a sudden be able to uh, fly a jet? Granted, so you'd have to role play him going, ah, okay, it's this here, and we do this. And, but he could, given time. He just has to get his mindset changed that there's this new, new devices in his myths and people who are able to use them. Acclimatization. I'm trying to remember in, in, in Fringeworthy, did we include the, the feats ability to use technology or alien technology? Yeah, uh, we have it. It gives a plus two bonus. I myself don't like that. And so in my game, what I do is I treat it like you treat almost everything else where if you don't have the knowledge, you're like at a minus four to use it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So every time that they run into alien technology, I apply a minus four to their success. And if they have the feat alien technology use, then they don't have a minus. But in the book, officially, it's plus two, your role. It's like the feats where you have, okay, you have drive and pilot. Well, drive is... Well, cars, pilot is your typical prop job airplane. If you want to drive like a heavy construction vehicle or if you want to pilot spacecraft, you have to get the feat that negates that minus four penalty. Right. Vehicle operation. Right. Yeah. And it, that's the same way even with, with let's say, mecha or starships. Uh -huh. Same thing. Yeah. When we take somebody, let's say we, we built them in D20 and we use D20 past and then we'd say, okay, in order for them to be able to use modern equipment that isn't something that you know is fairly intuitively useful, it has an easy-to-use interface, they would have a MICE 4 to use them that they could buy off with a use modern technology feat. Yeah, up to a point. There's some technology that is so easy to use. Well, that's what I'm saying. Something that has an easy-to-use technology, you don't need to do that. Yeah, So, but things like... It's interesting enough, the technology, say, from the 90s and 80s would actually fall underneath, underneath that, that problem because a lot of that stuff back then was a little bit more complicated to use than it is now, the same technology. It depends on how well refined it is. But, yeah, for the most part, that sounds good. I mean, if it's easy-to-use technology that's been fairly well refined, yeah, he, there's no penalty. Stuff that requires some knowledge of how the thing works so you would have to do some things like programming and so forth. Yeah, that you get minus four because you're still learning how that thing works. Yeah, if, if you have technology for a character, I'll, I'll use the example in my Friday night campaign. In the beginning, there was a 17th century pirate. And he all of a sudden was thrust into opportunities where he had access to high technology. Now, something like an automatic pistol. Now, 17th century pirates had... And I, I, I want to say flintlock, John, you'll probably correct me, like matchlock or whatever it is. But those type of guns where you load it. On, Close yeah. enough. <laughs> okay. You give a pirate something like a forty-five Revolver? No, yeah, just even a revolver. You're having, you can fire it six times without having to reload it. And then you have a speed loader, which you dump the bullets in and fire another six times. He would think that is the best thing since sliced white bread. Because he's not spending a minute, okay, put the ball in, put, pack it down, okay, let, boom, okay. Put. That's why they only use those guns. They had like, what did they call them, braces, where they might have had two or three on them, uh -huh. fire to knock guys down, and then they'd go in with their cutlasses. Right. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, some of them even had the guns uh, attached to their cutlasses because they knew they were only going to fire at once. Yeah, yeah, the blade was like out front of the barrel. Yeah, I remember seeing those, yeah. 
Yeah, Blackbeard but, Pirate would normally go on board a ship with at least six pistols on him. Yeah, ready braces, to go. Yeah, like bandoliers and stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, fire and drop, fire and drop, fire yeah. and drop, because there is no reloading. They introduced cartridges during the Indian campaigns with the British, and they conscripted a whole lot of natives to become soldiers. And one of the problems they had was that you got a cartridge, but it wasn't like a true cartridge, like a modern one. It had a ball in it, and it had the powder. You were supposed to bite off the end of it where the ball was, pour the powder down, take the ball out, and shove it down there. And, and so all the enemies of the British said, oh, don't you know that they keep those things watertight by using cow fat, which, of course, violated the Indian against doing anything to do with killing cows. They were using that kind of technology even then. Yeah. Having something like a revolver would be amazing for somebody in those situations. The first Colt revolver was a ball and cap. Imagine a muzzleloader times six. Right, but it was a revolver, which was great. <laughs> yeah, but it meant once you fired, once you fired all six shots... Just put it back in your holster because it's it's done for. You ain't going to reload in, in any combat. Right, <laughs> right. So, yeah. And there was a gradation, too, about, okay, because we had the 17th century pirate. We had the night in my campaign, we had a 1930s gumshoe. And then mm -hmm. we had someone who had access to modern technology. Either of those two previous characters, the pirate or the gumshoe, give them an M16. They're firing several bullets in a second, you know, burst fire. And, of course, they wouldn't know burst fire because, well, no, the, the gumshoe would know burst fire. They had Tommy guns. But the 17th century pirate, he'd have no concept that you could fire that many bullets that quick and see the, the resulting damage of those bullets mm -hmm. just ripping somebody apart. They would be in shock. Yeah, they'd be great. They'd be happy that they took their enemy down, but they would just be stunned that yeah. a gun could do that much damage. Okay, so we have a high-tech guy now. So what do we do? We, we give him minuses whenever he uses modern technology and more minuses when he uses primitive technology? That could be feasible. He's been raised to have this, this type of technology, and unless, let's say, he's a historian coming back to the past, he would That's not actually... have access on how to use organic technology, which means it's photosynthetic and it's a laser, like a plant-type thing, let's say. And he has no concept of the term of reloading. He's firing, oh, it's a strange, archaic projectile device. What do you mean it's not firing bullets anymore? Yeah. Is it broken? Yeah, he never had the concept of reloading because his oh. plant pistol just takes ambient light and fuels it for energy and it releases it. So He pulls his gun out and, and tries to pull the trigger not knowing that there's a safety on the sucker. Yes, that's another one. But that is a bad example because after you do it the third time, that's the safety is coming off on that gun. Right. You learn. Yes, we call that. Oh, my God, he has a learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bruce, there is a supplement for D20 called Blood and Time. It's done by RPG Objects. And they deal with time travel, and they have six feats. Archaic, modern, and futuristic, and there's like proficiency and expertise. If you have the first feat proficiency, you take less of a minus using technology from outside of your time frame. And if you take the second feat as well, you're totally fluent. Let's say if you're from the future, 2300. If you take the modern technology proficiency, 
you take only a minus two for using a 20th century computer as opposed to your organic heuristic wrist computer. And if you have the second feet, well, then you know how to use that 21st century laptop as well as a native. You could use feats to, to signify, okay, this guy has picked up how to use this older technology that otherwise someone of his time would have no clue. I'm thinking of Scotty. Hello, computer. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like what we're saying is, is that any equipment that anybody from any time period who gets onto an IDA team is familiar with, there's no minuses. Everyone's equal. But when we run into situations where you're dealing with unfamiliar equipment of a technology level that you are not of, then unless you have certain feats to help you bridge that knowledge, then that should start providing some negatives to your success roles. And that would apply just as much to the person from the modern dealing with the, with the primitive and the futuristic as were either of the other two. Oh, yeah. I, I had a friend who used to fire black powder. And one of the things you learn with black powder, you got to clean that barrel like every other time you fire it. You got to run a ramrod down with a cloth out to clean out the, clean out the gunk. Otherwise, it's going to jam on you. The devil, you say. Yes, the devil, I say. No, actually, I'd never heard that. See, I'd be the guy who could keep firing it until it blew up in his face. What happened to us is that the ball gets halfway down and stops. Uh-huh. And you don't dare fire it in that condition. You need to get a ball extracted to pull that sucker out, and then you got to clean the barrel and maybe check make sure you, if you didn't damage the thing in the process. And a ball extractor is not an NPC. It's actually a technological device, right? <laughs> It's a screw that goes in and screws into the into the bullet and lets you pull extract it from the from the barrel. Okay. <laughs> I've got nothing. I just yeah. Okay. <laughs> when you looked at the original TriTech rules, and one of the things that they had in the weapons section were misfire chances. When it came to black powder weapons, they were significantly higher. And I think this was probably a lot to do with that, is the fact that, you know, if you had a 25% misfire chance, that would make sense that if you fired the gun four times in a row, then after the fourth shot, if you were lucky enough to get the fourth shot off, it's not working anymore. Yeah. So you have to take time to do some maintenance, which means you're not going to be able to fire it very often at all. Well, even these guns with polymers like the glocks and everything yes they're made of you know high ceramic polymers and this that and the other and all these various you still got to take apart and maintain the gun every so often that's just wear and tear on the parts due to the forces that go into moving these parts to propel a bullet oh like when i was in the service we you know i had an m16 and if you're firing normal rounds you had to clean it but every 200 to, to uh, 300 rounds, you'd have to take it apart and clean it thoroughly. After firing blanks, you had to clean it immediately afterwards because the blanks were actually were dirtier than the uh, normal powder, powder charges. Oh, yeah, yeah. Leave all that cotton fuzz all down your barrel. Oh, yeah, this is a pain. <laughs> Jem and Jenny, that was his nickname. One of the problems with high-tech gear is that the original environment I was used in may, may work perfectly. You put it into a different environment, it may break down after three uses. Well, that's why a lot of the gear that we talk about in Fringeworthy has been made far, far more rugged. You can drop laptops, you know, four feet and, and onto concrete, and they don't break. The IDET 
computer. One of the things that it had that most computers didn't have, it had a zillion ports on it. Or it had a, a place to plug a, a, a port box onto. And what it would do is that when you tried to communicate, plug it into something, it would sit there and it would run all kinds of special programs to try to figure out what it was attached to. So it could set up proper communication protocols. Your regular computers, now we've got stuff that you put in a USB port and it'll figure it out. But you plug in anything that's more than five years old, it says, I don't know what this is. Could you install a driver, please? Yeah. But when you're out in the field in IDET, you don't have that. So I'm sure that there's a lot of problems interfacing some of these super high-tech devices uh, or just even just regular high-tech devices that some guy from a high-tech world might have into your everyday usage devices at IDET. That's like childproof cap. What, how do you open a childproof cap? Give it to a kid, yeah. <laughs> you could bring anybody from a technology level where they don't know how to read. That would, right there would be the, would be the absolute killer. Like Stone Age, PL1, PL0. Yeah, if you don't know how to read and you don't have the ability to learn because the, your brain never had a chance to, you know, I, don't need, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, I'm just saying is that, that that would really put you far behind the curve. I mean, you, know, you couldn't become easily adapted because you couldn't read manual. I guess you could watch videos, how-to things. Yeah. One of my theories about the Star Trek universe, Super Jay's not here, he could bounce us off, that except for folks like the weirdos in Starfleet who like, actually like to read, I would imagine that the average citizen in, Star, in the Federation is functionally illiterate because the computers talk to them. The computers well, no, talk to them. they have stuff printed out. You've seen it on, on the, that they actually have words printed out on the screen. So, I mean, that, especially next gen. And they still have to work with symbols on control panels. But once you learn those, I would imagine but it's like LOL. Text speak, yeah. Functionally illiterate. They know enough to use your equipment. If they want to know about Shakespeare's plays, they watch them. They don't actually read them. They watch them. I would much rather watch a Mel Gibson's rendition of Hamlet than sit there and crack open a book and read it. Because you'd look at the these, thys, and thous, and you're just like, uh, really? If you're from a high-tech world and or from a low-tech world where you're not familiar with some of the normal ways of doing things, one of the easiest ways of bridging that is to use video where you can actually see somebody doing common tasks, watching television. I mean, we've seen it as a trope in so many movies where the alien comes to Earth and he sits around for a week watching television and all of a sudden he, he's, he can fit in now. He understands how to do things. You don't have to be able to read, even if you're a primitive, in order to actually uh, learn how to do things as long as you have some kind of an example that is willing to sit there and continue repeatedly be an example for you. And video is an, is an excellent way of doing that. Now, of oh, course, yeah. we don't have the problems where we were watching a television show and then it was over and something else came on. Now we've got videos that are on computers where you can take the controller, wheel it back, look at the same thing again and again and again. So that little thing that you missed the first time through, you can see it. I think that uh, there may be an tr extended training period for people from the past or the future just to get themselves acclimatized with the equipment and the techniques of a so-called modern explorer. Uh, ultimately, it's going to come out in the wash. Well, that's why I, I use for D&D characters, let's say a fantasy-level character somehow ends up getting into the Bureau. Well, obviously, somebody of that, the Bureau would want. I use the technical proficiency feat to say, 
And, and basically the prerequisite, you have to spend an entire level by the time, let's say you are at the beginning of fourth level and you come in contact with higher tech. If you spend that entire level, by the time you hit fifth level, the GM says you get a free fee, technical knowledge. You have been around high tech people and their technology enough where you can use it. You can drive a car. You can use an ATM. You know the basics of how to work a computer, firearms. It's just adventuring with these people and you're becoming immersion in their culture and how to go about using all these new devices that they brought into your life. I mean, you could just do that for the purposes of of the acclimatization. God, I have trouble with that word. Or those uh, feats from blood and time that I referred to earlier about archaic, modern, and advanced technology proficiency and expertise. Would either side continue to have an advantage over, you know, any of the other two versions? I would probably say you'd have to be based on in the setting. Now, let's say you are in a forest Mm -hmm. and you have your 2200s holographic artists. Then you have a modern day Ida Explorer and then you got a Tazeel. If you're in the forest and you're having to track, it's a good chance that 23rd century holographic artist is not going to know the concept of tracking through a forest. The Ida guy... Yeah, he probably took some survival training. Yeah. That Tazio is neck high in home. This is something he was raised with from birth. I'm laying my money on the guy with the scales to get us on the right track with mm-hmm. maybe the iDead Explorer helping him out. The 2200s uh, holographic artist can just stand back and say, oh, we're going that way? Okay, I'll, I'll follow. Yeah. One way to get them spotlight time is to put them in situations where the high-tech guy is stands back and lets the low-tech guy do his thing. Because the low-tech guy actually has has the necessary skills and has him probably at a better level than the high-tech guy might have if he has him at all. Right. Yeah. The only thing I'm worried about is creating a situation where you're essentially uh, balkanizing the group where the low-tech guy is always going to be the guy who does the wilderness survival stuff and the high-tech guy is always going to be the gearhead. From the point of view, though, of character creation... But let's be honest, if you're, if you're making a character who was made in the past, uh, some systems may actually restrict you to what skills you can take, so you may not be able to t- initially take those skills that would give you the ability to use high-tech until later, until you, until you progress your character to later on. Again, that would be like the technical proficiency fee. Yeah, you need yeah. to spend an entire level. The, the caveman needs to spend an entire level of interacting with the World War I soldier. And it's just... In your off time when you're not adventuring, that World War I soldier is sitting there with the caveman and going, okay, this is how you use this, this is how you use that. If you're Mm going to be an effective partner of mine, I need to bring you up to speed. And in turn, the caveman would be like, okay, this is how you make a flint knife, and this is how you would attack this type of creature, and this is how you track, and this is how you would survive here. They'd be trading off skills with each other. You really can't reflect... Yeah. The World War One soldier learning the caveman skills, except the World War One soldier is now dumping all of his ranks into survival and spot and yeah. you know skills necessary for him to mimic what this oh, yeah. caveman was raised from birth to do. Well, would yeah. you want him to shift skill points then, or would you just want to give everybody just a, a bonus number of skills that they could apply to the r- appropriate role-playing type thing? 
Well, it also depends on whether there's limitations on the character. Say, say the system you're using, if you're from a low-tech world, you're limited to the number of skills you can use. Well, okay, you've gained a level. That may be just enough for you to say, okay, now I can start taking these skills. I just can't take them as high as these people because I don't have the background. Oh, yeah, I've seen rule systems that say, okay, when you start, you cannot take because of your less technological background. Oh, God, what is the race? I think it's in D20 Future. The Warren, which is basically the Sasquatch. I think that they, right off the bat, they are at a renaissance-level technology. Until they gain a couple levels, they only use their renaissance-level technology. They will look at a modern firearm and just go, I, okay, this is a gun you don't reload for 100 bullets. Wait a minute. All my life, I have had this one... You know, you put the powder in this, that, and you cram it down, and you fire. Do that again. And just their mindset that they've been raised with, that firearm, yeah, they think it's incredibly effective, but they're, they put it in their hands and they're like, huh? And they have to wait a while until they get proficient with it. I've seen other ones, it's like, no, they're so ingrained in their ways, any tech level above this, it's just unattainable to them just so inundated by the society in which they're in that they cannot grasp higher concepts. I've seen that in several game systems. And I call bovine stuff on that and those kind of rules because we have examples in our own right in our own real world of people who basically you look at and say, oh, he's a primitive native. And then he pulls out the cell phone and starts using it. It's just a matter of learning. The, the file I sent you guys, the Second World Sourcebook, you're taking your D20 modern classes and let's say you have a smart hero who's oh, an environmentalist. And you get dumped into a fantasy realm. An environmentalist who has ranger skills would be the stuff. Because now he's learning tracking and he's got wild empathy and he gains the endurance feat. And many of the things that the iDead Explorer class has, but mm -hmm. turn to 11. And you get yeah. things like the favored enemy, where all of a sudden this environmentalist, well, let's say he's had to hunt every so often. Give him favored enemy animal. That means when he's hunting down animals, such as bear, moose, deer, whatever, he gets the plus twos to various skills and the plus one to, I believe, attack rolls and damage against, that against animals. Things in the monster manual with the subtype of animal or, or yeah. type of animal. So, yeah, I mean, you might have to start taking different classes because these other classes, and let's say you're a fantasy character and you decide to, you end up in the future. And let's say you take a prestige or advanced class that you just happen to qualify for. You're having to take these new, this new class. In order to learn these skills, this new class has these new future skills as class skills. That way then they are less expensive to buy ranks for so i mean that's kind of you know mm -hmm. strong arming because you're having to take a whole new class to get these skills but it could be a way that it's done that would be for real stingy gms yeah You'd be like oh you want to learn computers and you just happen to have enough intelligence and other ranks okay fine then you can take you know the hacker prestige class or whatever you know just sake of example Right. Well, that's one reason why when we did create the Fringeworthy game, we just basically said, I did training, here's a package, you, you treat your character from for experience points benefits as if these two levels higher, and we give you all these feats and we give you all these skills. 
Well, yeah, Bureau 13 has the template in back, which gives you, and I just started to remember using this. I had to kind of retcon my characters. You get knowledge, arcana, religion, and civics, and you get armor proficiency light, like bulletproof vests, and personal firearms proficiency. So you can walk around with a Kevlar vest and a 45 automatic pistol, and you've gotten training in magic, undead, and law, yep. which are the bare classes, you know, bare skills that you would need to be a government agent in Bureau 13. Yeah, because you always want to know when you're going afoul of the law. Oh, yeah, exactly. You're skirting <laughs> all that. And with the IDET template and the, the accompanying TAS template, you know, the, the, the Bureau 13, eh, three skills, two feats, not going to alter your character. How many class skills do you get with the, the IDET template? Like 10? Yeah, it basically makes them no longer cross-class. That was the be important thing. Right, permanent class skills. When you get the template, the class you're at the level at the time, if those are class skills, don't you get like a plus one competence bonus to those skills? No, you, you get a plus one whether it's in your class or not. You basically oh, okay. Oh, so it's yeah. already there. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you get like what ten class skills and three feats, something like that. that yeah, that merits the level it, adjustment. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's two feats, but it, that was why we gave it a plus two level adjustment. Yeah. 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 So. And also the wealth raise and everything. So yeah, it's it's I that justifies the plus two level adjustment. We're dealing with that now in in my campaign, the fringeworthy game I'm running. Because in D twenty modern, every level you go up, you get either a feat or you get a special power or ability from the class that you took. So for every level you go up, you're getting another feat essentially. Yeah. So that's why going up two, we figure two feats, and then all these skills that we thought would be the epitome of what an IDET Explorer was. Because let's say you bring somebody from a PL4 society, and he's fringeworthy, and he wants to see all this new stuff that's out there, and you bring him back to IDET, and he goes through Alice Springs, and he gets all these new skills. And it's like, for, let's see, PL4, they... Well, no, PL3 was where they still use poultices and bleed bloodletting. PL4, okay, they're starting to use some scientific method where they've established some basic medical skills. Mm -hmm. You run them through the Alice Springs training, he's getting access to early PL6 medical technology and training. He's all of a sudden, he and, and with like, let's see, disguise, diplomacy, knowledge technology... All these skills, this PL4 guy is all of a sudden drinking from the fire hose. He's uh -huh. doing stuff that he couldn't even dream of, and it's all extrapolated from things he was raised with. And he's that, that's another thing you have to deal with with high and low tech characters. It's something you'd have to role play, and it often makes for very good role playing the concept of culture shock. My buddy Jeff, his 17th century pirate, in my campaign had to deal with the fact now that he's dealing with the 1930s pulp investigator and the woman born in the future but raised in a medieval magic using society there's culture shock because you're having these different people having to interact and they are just throwing things at you that you aren't getting and it could be just as much if you're a real good role player just as much as slang oh I, so much misconstruing of and they're all speaking the same english language but between 17th century and let's say mid 21st century 400 years of one language changing. Mm -hmm. Our language has changed just in the past, oh God, 20 years okay. with the advent of the computer and the internet. 
and you know we have different ter- worldwide web got into the webster's dictionary maybe just 6 years ago officially if you were to tell somebody from 50 years ago the worldwide web they'd be like there are giant spiders in our future right <laughs> well fortunately fringeworthy solved all that with a gifted language it takes care of all those idiom problems yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, but, but I'm also I'm also thinking of long as, as well as Fringeworthy, but we were mentioning this before. Uh, or you're in Bureau Thirteen, and you're and one of the characters is an agent from 1860, who found a time gate, and now here he is in the 21st century. And after he's done huddling in the corner, rocking, holding his knees, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you're talking culture shock, one of the problems the Victorians have with visiting Earth Prime is all the flesh. They see it being shown by women. Oh, yes. Well, even the flesh shown by the guys. You see a guy walking around yeah. in a tank top, and you'd be thinking, why is he in a bathing suit? Yeah. That's not a bathing suit. They had the one-piece one yeah. bathing suits that looked, you know, it looked yeah. like a, and I hate this term, I deplore this term, a wife beater. <laughs> you know, and just that was their bathing suit, the one-piece uh, Victorian male swimsuit. Yeah, even then they'd be that's scandalous. A man walking around with bare shoulders and bare arms. Oh yeah, you didn't do that anywhere but on the beach. Right. And here it is, a guy in modern day New York City walking around in the middle of the summer in a tank top and shorts. Those Victorian people who obviously would have been dressed to fit in, they'd still be in nice twenty first century suits, looking in that and they would just be aghast. Oh, just walking the beaches in Rio. That'd be an eye opener for them. Oh, Oh, they'd be feigning left, right, center there. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, culture shock is something else that there's no mechanic for it. It just makes for fantastic role-playing, watching the 17th century pirate having to deal with something that the 1930s guy has on him. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.